Welcome back to MERS Monday for more than 10 years, the Michigan political podcast. In this week's edition of MERS Monday, House Judiciary Committee Chair Graham Filler hangs much of the Republicans' failures of 2022 around the neck of former President Donald Trump. University of Michigan Regent Sarah Hubbard, the principal of Acuitas, talks about the school's new president and the coming lame duck session. And Rep-elect Emily Devendorf talks about where their passion for social justice comes from. Now here's Kyle Malin with John Rurink and Samantha Schreiber. Thank you, Mark Bayshore. And as for as painful as this is for me, we got to bring on Sarah Hubbard first off in the podcast to congratulate this University of Michigan trustee on her school's huge win in Columbus, first win in Columbus since the year 2000 and heading to the Big Ten Championship in football. Congratulations, Sarah. Well, thank you very much, Kyle and the whole MERS family. I really appreciate it. And I got to give you a go blue. Uh, It was a great day in Columbus on Saturday. Um, And I have to, you know, kudos to the Buckeyes. They were very gracious hosts. I'd heard a lot of stories going into that event about how mean they were going to be to me and how I couldn't wear my Michigan clothes. And I will admit, I did go a little uh, incognito with a black coat, but I still wear my Michigan sweater. And they were fine. They were really gracious hosts. They were, you know, they didn't really chat me up a whole lot, but they weren't mean. So um, we were uh, happy to be there, happy for the result. A result I certainly didn't see coming. I had hoped it would be close, but certainly not that. And I mean, can you believe Donovan Edwards played that game and did everything he did with a broken right hand? He had a cast on that hand under that white glove. Wow. Isn't that amazing? I, it's, I, gotta, I was going to say, as a Spartan fan, I suppose we should, Kyle, say, go blue. It's okay. It doesn't hurt too much, right? Well, we'll see. You still got to beat Purdue in order to get to the the big NCAA college football playoff. As a, as, yeah. a, as a member of the, the sort of the, you know, the management team there at, at the University of Michigan as, as a region, do you think that um, we're going to hear talk about an NFL career for the coach or is he going to stay? I think he's going to stay. Um, you know, he's been there through the NFL, been there, done that. Now he says this is the best time of his life. I think he said that before in other jobs. Um, Coach Harbaugh is, uh, he has a great, you know, team of players. He has a great team of coaches. He seems very committed. So I think if he can make a real national championship run here over the next couple of months, I mean, I hope he stays anyway, based on um, how things are going. So, you know, he's, uh, he, he really has a real collaboration with the players. I mean, they really respond to him, obviously, and he's been a strong recruiter. So um, I'm looking forward to him staying. So I personally have been saying go blue this year. (laughs) I'm not connected. (laughs) Uh, But I do want to talk about the new U of M president, President Santa Ona, who Ono, who assumed office last October. Uh, How has he been doing and how has he been delivering since taking office? Yeah, so we love our new president. Um, I co-chaired the presidential search after our previous president, Mark Schlissel, was terminated from his employment (laughs) Uh, January of 2022. And so we announced the hiring of Santa J. Ono in July of this year, and he started in mid-October, as you mentioned. Um, And he is incredible. His communication style is like nothing we've seen before. It could not be more different than 
really any previous president. He has a very active social media presence and following. Um, he started posting on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook before he started the job. And he continues to do it on his own. I mean, there are some of those things that are curated by university communications, but really he's very active on his own. And he, um, if you were watching him over the last couple of days, he was posting pictures of Michigan dogs, <laughs> dog composites of dogs in little Michigan sweaters. And then he'll go and he'll post a picture of him with uh, students. He played already with the University Symphony Orchestra. He plays the cello and on campus. I mean, he has done so many things already in the short time he's been our president that we've never seen a president of our university, at least that I know of, be this engaged on the campus with the students, with the faculty, with the staff. Um, he is a guy, just a creature who loves that engagement, loves people, loves being with the public, loves talking to our donors. Um, he'll be going to the championship game in Indianapolis on Saturday and representing. Uh, so, and he has a very strong commitment to um, decarbonizing the campus. Uh, he's brought that with him from his work at Brit British Columbia at the University of Van uh, University of British Columbia. Um, he's committed to you know really keeping um, the hospital, the health system strong, all all the things you'd want to see somebody like that do. He has been really already very positive in his impact on the campus. I'm just really impressed that the University of Michigan, since or 1852, he is your 15th president. That's that's pretty amazing that you've only had 15 presidents in what 170 years. Yeah, it is amazing, and um, he has commented that on a few occasions. Um, it, it shows the yeah consistency we've really had in that university over the years. Uh, certainly, but he's, uh, this was his dream job in Canada, uh, in government positions, they typically have term limits. And so he was limited as the president of the University of British Columbia to two five-year terms. And he was in the middle of his second term earlier this year when the Michigan job came open. So he knew and his board knew that he would have to leave within a couple of years anyway. And when his dream job came open, he went after it and he applied and he turned out to, to really rise the top from a, a pool of excellent candidates from across the country and the world for that matter. I know you got you, you, you shared your, your appreciation for the new president. Has this job, though, as a university president gotten more difficult? Because I look at you know, Michigan State's had a number of, of changes. Obviously, we had the Nasser scandal. Uh, U of M had its own scandal. Uh, the job has itself become more difficult, or is just is, is it is it just this turbulent period we're going through with these two major issues in these two major universities? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I, I think the complications of COVID have made the job very difficult right now. So not only COVID, but declining enrollment for a lot of universities. Now, University of Michigan is fortunate that we're still seeing very, very strong applications and increasing enrollment. Um, but for a lot of universities, the specter of declining enrollment has had a significant level of pressure on presidents. And we're seeing turnover at the college president level of all kinds of colleges at an astounding rate because it's such a tough job right now. And I think what people looked for out of a president into COVID and what they're looking for now may be different from boards. Certainly personalities um, differ and have an impact there, but I think uh, uh, not only is it a difficult job, but if you look at uh, the University of Michigan, our annual budget is $11 billion now, and it has grown 
significantly over the last many years. And so there again, it's a more complex place. The health system is over half our budget. Uh, so you need to have a president that can not only handle you know, maintaining the academic excellence, the athletic excellence, but the health system at U of M, a little different at some other universities, but it's a complicated job for an executive. And you have to have a very, very strong team around you of vice presidents that can really do their jobs and be, you know, held accountable to what they need to do. That's a remarkable number. I mean, that's the same size as the state's general fund. Yeah. If you add, um, our our endowment. So Michigan's endowment is nearing 20 billion. It's I think was 17 last year, so it's nearing. So we don't vote, you know, on an annual basis on our endowment, but it's certainly part of the financial, um, you know, organizational piece that we have oversight over on the board. I mean, I have oversight. Our, I as part of the board of regents, we have oversight over almost 30 billion dollars. I do want to talk about the medical schools. So during the summer, there was a walkout during the white coat ceremony uh, where incoming medical students left, you know, around the abortion subject. Were there students or potential candidates that said, I will not go here if the 1931 abortion ban is implemented? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I think it served as a really great example of the university's commitment to free speech on campus. And a lot of people, you know, view the University of Michigan as this, you know, very liberal, you know, place that's just stamping out Democrats into society. And, you know, that I think some Republicans look at it that way. But there we had an example of a very small group of people. It looked big because it had a six second video that went around along with it, but a very small group of students who decided to walk out on that speaker. The vast majority of students that attended that ceremony stayed. That speaker was brought in at the request of, you know, faculty and students and such. That's something where they they, uh, worked on that. And we knew ahead of time there was going to be potentially a protest. And, um, you know, the leadership of the university said we must continue to allow this person to speak. We have a commitment to free speech, and that includes all voices. And it's really important there. And we also recently had... um, Darn, I can't remember his name, but a very conservative, you know, national figure on campus um, as well, who, you know, if we're going to be committed to free speech in uh, a lot of places, in a lot of different ways, on, you know, more liberal causes, we need to allow conservatives to speak on campus as well. And that's one thing that I think balance on our board brings to the table is that, you know, everybody there is saying, okay, we need to maintain this. Now, to your point of are people declining to go to the university somehow relative to this? I'm not aware of that. I mean, we have a very, very strong level of admissions. We had um, for our, now that was the med school, but for our undergraduate admissions, um, again, this year we had over 80,000 applicants for something like 8,000 spots. Uh, so people are, families and students are uh, still very bullish on the university. Uh, we're test flexible now in that you don't have to submit your SAT scores. You can if you want, or you can submit your super score, which is a term I wasn't familiar with before this year, but people who have kids that take the SAT are. So it's part of the total picture of how we look at students and how we accept them and um, something that uh, has really driven interest in the university and provided us a more diverse pool of candidates, frankly. Um, Potential students who didn't think they could get in before are applying now and getting in in some cases because their full picture is being looked at and they're not, you know, just wiped out because of a test score. 
All right, I'm going to have you take off your University of Michigan Regent hat for a second and now put on your hat as CEO of Equitas as we get ready for Lame Duck 2022. And uh, we did a profile on uh, the Lame Duck session coming up here starting, I guess it's starting tomorrow. Um, we'll see how active it is. But only a few days the uh, House and Senate are looking at meeting, as few as two. Uh, they'd really like to keep it no more than three. But the number of items on the agenda is very small. And it really seems to, to boil down to the extent to which uh, Mike Shirky is willing to negotiate on this uh, on this uh, proposal about mental health integration with uh, physical health for the Medicaid population and, and hoping to get something, get some kind of deal uh, related to that. And uh, if so, can uh, they pass some kind of ethics commission that the House wants and um, some type of insulin cap, some uh, cost controls on the price of insulin. And uh, for the governor's standpoint, she'd like to see the uh, Democratic presidential primary be moved up so that uh, it is legally set and uh, gives the caucus and the state some leverage as they talk with uh, the Democratic National Committee. And then it uh, sounds like she wants to get some um, uh, some money, some additional money into her SOAR fund. But uh, the fact that we're only talking about such few, so few days, do you, I, first of all, I, I guess I got to ask you, Sarah, do you believe it? Do you think they're really only going to meet two or three days this lame duck? I, I do believe it. Uh, I believe that the 6th and 7th are really it for the House and Senate and uh, sprinkled among these items that they're discussing are a mind-numbing number of going away speeches uh, <laughs> for which I would wish that they would actually provide a schedule so that we could tune in um, to hear our favorites. But alas, I'm not aware of such a thing and perhaps we'll just have to read about it in the journal. But um you know, of those things you mentioned, I'm not convinced they're all actually on the table still. I do think, uh, I totally agree with you that the governor continues to be interested in the presidential primary. And I know there are a lot of people, a lot of companies that were awarded items in the SOAR fund that would love to see that um, that uh, supplemental pass that approves their items. Now, um, I as I recall this was in boilerplate, this requirement, and you know the governor from time to time deems boilerplate unenforceable. I don't think that was a straight statutory requirement. So I don't know honestly where that stands right now, but I'm not hearing um, a lot of serious discussion about any of these items. But what I warn my clients about is that when they're standing around listening to speeches, that's when they have time to come up with bad ideas. And, and those bad ideas are what happened during lame duck. I haven't done the math yet. Maybe one of you guys have, but if we're looking at how many people sitting in those seats this month, next month are actually lame ducks, it's got to be an extraordinary number. It's at least half the house. We're talking at least 55 yeah. speeches yeah. in the Senate. That's 16 okay. more. 55 yeah. speeches, Sarah. That are, that are right. That, I mean, did you add to that the number that are in their final term? Yeah. I mean, in some yeah, of I those did. cases, yeah. 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 So yeah. we may not know, right? Some of them may be in the final term and they don't know it yet, but um, uh, it's incredible, right? So if the governor has things she wants to do th that she doesn't want to have her caucus walk the plank on next year, uh, now's the time to put those things on the table. And I'm not hearing about a lot of that kind of discussion, but uh, I'm prepared should they suddenly again come up with a list of bad ideas on December 6th and 7th. Now, politically, though, don't don't you think if you sort of think about the personalities of the leaders and you think about the tenures and you, 
I, I could see Soar maybe passing, but I, I don't see Shirky having the patience to negotiate anything very complex. And I'm not saying that to disparage him. I've enjoyed covering him, and he's a very insightful uh, politician. But he, he just sort of—it just sort of seems like I don't—I don't see anything really delicate being negotiated. And why would they, if you're a Republican-controlled legislature, give the governor anything beyond what you absolutely have to? Yeah, there's a lot of opposition out there to that physical mental health integration. I, I don't—I—I I, I, of the list you provided. I would put the SOAR fund at the top as the most likely thing. If you could have a very slim um, supplemental that included those things, because those companies that received awards have a lot of pull in the Republican caucus, and obviously the governor wants them too. So, you know, you could see constituencies rising to the top related to those items and maybe a few other going away presents, but not a huge free-for-all kind of supplemental budget. I, I don't I don't see that happening because I agree. Why why would anybody agree to that? Why would the governor agree to that? So what do you think about this idea about the ethics commission that the House has passed that's sitting in the Senate right now? The the Republican legislature can take the approach, it's better if we go ahead and do this and pass an ethics commission than leaving it up to the Democrats to pass it. It's better to control your own destiny when it comes to rules you may have to live by than leave it up to somebody else. Yeah, uh, there again, you know, if they put too much in there that's intended to, you know, have a significant impact on the new Democratic majority, why would the governor be interested? No, I mean, no. I don't know what kinds of discussions are in there, but if I were a betting person, I would think that if you're a Republican, you'd be looking at how you could restrict future legislatures with some of these items. And that, you know, again, why would the governor want to do that? Um, I just, it seems very remote to me that these kinds of things will go forward. Even the insulin cap, we didn't, I mentioned the insulin cap. That's something the speaker really wanted. Yeah. And, and there's a thing I think we should expect would come back potentially next year. I mean, those are the kinds of things, insurance mandates that we think could be uh, of interest to the new Democratic majority. Uh, but to that point, I was doing a little uh, talking to some clients and who've done a little research about the new majority and what might happen because it's so thin. And I don't know if you've looked at how many votes were missed in the last session. Oh, I but, did, as a matter like, of fact. It is yeah, quite a few. So, it's a lot. It, it's a, both on the Republican and Dem side, about double, more than maybe triple even, of Democrats. But if you have a similar clip of people missing votes, either we're going to have a lot of days with no session, or we're going to have a lot of days with things that are basically unanimous passing that aren't controversial. And when everybody's there is when they're going to have to save up any controversial stuff to pass all at once. But you know, with COVID still rampant, with the flu, with the RSV, with all these other viruses coming up, people are sick all the time. I mean, I know I have good friends who just got COVID in the last week and are down and out, like missed Thanksgiving. I mean, it's still, still happening. So <laughs> it's not going to be easy for anybody to get anything done that has that's not very bipartisan in its approach. Just out of curiosity, what, what, what do you advise your clients right now about the topic of right to work? What do you think happens there? Yeah, um, you know, it, it doesn't have a huge impact on most of our clients. So um, should the Democrats want to do that? Uh, you know, 
I, it's not something I'm hearing about, frankly, uh, from most of our clients. I mean, if you're in the business community, you know, they're going to check with their largest stakeholders that might have an opinion on it, certainly. But when it passed previously, there are a lot of groups in the business community that didn't get real involved. So is, is it not the boogeyman that everybody makes it out to be? I'm finding people are more worried about other issues, you know, are more worried about, um, you know, whether it's taxes or insurance mandates or, you know, um, issues relative to, let's say, unemployment or things that are very directly impactful to the cost of doing business in Michigan, I think are going to be the things that rise to the top for a lot of folks. That doesn't mean that these um, traditionally philosophical, you know, foundational issues for the parties don't come to the fore and be controversial because a lot of those are 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 going to be of interest to the grassroots out there, right? They're going to be very important to a broad level of constituents that I think believe, like for instance, gun rights, you know, those are going to be more driven probably by the grassroots. All right. Well, we've hit our time here. We appreciate you spending as much as you have with us. Sarah Hubbard, University of Michigan Region, and also a principal over at Acuitas. Thank you. Thank you very much. Get him out by Friday. You don't get paid to the last one. Swear on his way. Get him out by Friday. It's important that we keep the schedule. There must be no delay. Joining us now on the podcast is State Representative Graham Filler. He is the chair of the House Judiciary Committee. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Yes, sir. I love going on the MERS podcast. I'm ready. All right, Mr. Chair, we have a committee meeting next week where you are scheduled to take up legislation that you're extremely interested in pursuing here during the lame duck. It has to do with landlord and tenants. Uh, give our listeners a little primer on what this is about. Sure. Let me give you the two-minute uh, spiel. Uh, during COVID, uh, the Michigan Supreme Court essentially put in COVID rules on evictions here in the state of Michigan. And I completely understand it. People lost their jobs. Um, there was a massive amount of federal money for people who were behind on their rent. Uh, and also people didn't physically want to show up to court. So uh, completely made sense to me. However, now the Supreme Court um, is attempting to take a an emergency COVID rule and turn it into a forever rule here in the state of Michigan. And really it comes down to this. Uh, if I am a renter and I am late, and I am served properly and I don't show up at the hearing, the court hearing, then in the state of Michigan for forever and a day, the judge has the right and typically will um, file uh, an eviction notice. Under this Supreme Court rule, the major change is they essentially cannot file an eviction notice on the first hearing. They have to push it off to a second hearing and that has caused mass chaos and numerous other issues here in the state of Michigan. Because it means landlords will not be paid for basically a month and a half, uh, two months, three months in, in uh, some cases? Uh, in Wayne County, we've seen six months to a year. Um, and that also leads me to the discussion about sort of an unequal administration of justice. You know, in mid-Michigan, maybe it's uh, three weeks and then there's a second hearing. And in you know, Wayne County, it's six months or it's 11 months. It's really making Michigan's housing market even worse than it really is. So we talk about unintended consequences. 
So, but you're not advocating kicking these people out into the street, are you? These tenants who, who can't pay their rent? So there has to be a balance, as anybody would agree, and I'm sure you would agree too. There needs to be a balance. Uh, if you don't pay your rent, then either we as a state need to make policies uh, to help, such as diversion programs, such as putting money aside like the feds did for individuals who couldn't make their rent. But at some point, you signed a lease and said, I owe money and I will pay to rent and live in this property. And if you fail to do that, then, you know, at some point you got to go. The Supreme Court uh, has been uh, operating this on administrative rule for some time. Those rules are expiring. And as you said, the Supreme Court wants to make those rules permanent. What are you hoping to do through your House Judiciary Committee? Well, I think the number one thing I would say is I feel like the Supreme Court is making policy here. Um, and you'll see some of the discussion from from supporters of this, which is, hey, if there's a second hearing during the, during that eviction process, then forward. That's not for scale to look at an emergency rule, see a good result, and then try to make that emergency rule into a forever rule. Um, and so what I'd like to do is say, hey, I'm open to a policy conversation. If there is evidence out there that the Michigan housing market or the Michigan government needs to do better when it comes to individuals who are getting evicted, then I'm open to that conversation. I'm open to pilot programs too, but this is a policy conversation. So what is an antidote that the legislature can provide for this issue, especially with there only being one month left of the year? Yeah, I mean, it's my intent to push this bill as far as I can. And I know I have support um, uh, across the stakeholder spectrum. We're talking about realtors, commercial real estate, things like that. We're even talking about the Michigan Judges Association that came out in opposition because they said this emergency rule has told them that they must not follow the law regarding eviction uh, processes. And so they opposed. Um, and it was a really fascinating thing when they did public comment the other day. And um, uh, the folks who are proponents of this said, hey, tough luck. You should have known what you were getting into when you decide to rent um, and lease homes. And the, the follow-up to that is, no, there needs to always be a balance in the landlord-tenant market. And this is shifting policy in massive favor towards the renter, the unpaying, non-paying renter. So if it does get postponed to until next year, do you imagine this not being successful in a Democratic-led legislature? You know, I don't know that answer because this is not a partisan issue. Um, I, I think everybody wants individuals to pay their rent, and I'll tell you why. Uh, if if an individual or let's say you own 30 units and 10 of them are non-paying, well, you as the as the as the uh, the landlord or the property owner, then you can't pay your electrician. Then you can't pay the person who cuts the grass. You can't pay the person, the handyman. And then those people have issues going forward. So you're basically causing this cascading economic effect um, by just leaving these unpaid homes out there. What have the realtors told you, for example? I mean, at one point I owned, actually owned two homes that had three units each in them when I was much younger and had more money to work on it. Uh, but I can't imagine if uh, taking 11 months and not getting payment, I would assume that that's going to destroy the housing market itself, right? Yeah, I think that would be the claim from the folks who own property here in the state of Michigan, which is it is damn near impossible to get an eviction order these days in the state of Michigan. And it's all been caused by this rule. Let's shift focus here to uh, the Republican Party and 
Uh, how do you see, I guess uh, you're going to be operating in the minority. You're coming back this next session, but you are going to be coming back in the minority. How do you think the Republicans got here? Donald Trump. You think it was because of Donald Trump? Uh, if you like losing, then I think you should follow Donald Trump. And unfortunately, um, I still remember going to the White House during the Trump years and talking to the some of the Trump folks and saying, hey, what we need to do is have the president talk about his uh, pro-regulatory uh, environment and the things he's doing for uh, the state of Michigan that have been so great. And they said, he kind of just likes to tweet and then watch things explode. And so, you know, we'll try. We'll try to get him going on this. But so so what happens is that I don't think people in the state of Michigan have some sort of dream that the Democratic Party is selling to them that they've purchased. I just think they would just like some stability. And they don't want this America first um, uh, blow up everything in fighting that now many members of, of the leadership in the Michigan Republican Party have sold. And that comes straight from Donald Trump. I mean, he spent the last two years going to war with elected officials in the state of Michigan. And he blames them, of course, for, and myself, I guess, uh, Senator Shirky for not overturning the election. And so if you want infighting and you, you want sort of non-governing, then yeah, let's stick with Trump. But if you want to move on to just sort of that common sense leadership uh, discussion of things like supporting small businesses and all workers are good, not just union workers, they're good too, but all workers are good. Um, and uh, common sense regu regulations, not over regulations. Hey, stick with the Republican Party, stick with the, what's got us here, what kept us in the majority for a million years. Now you're, you're a rules guy. Um, have you thought much about the fact that, I mean, there's so many states where they're gonna make their delegate selection and, and their determination in ways that if there's three, four, five candidates and Trump's in it, he's gonna win. I mean, there's still a solid uh, chunk of people in the party that support Donald Trump in a fervent way. Yeah, I don't, I don't deny that at all. But I, I guess if you like, if you like losing, then Trump's about to serve up some more. Nationwide, all these Trump candidates um, got destroyed in swing states and in non-swing states. It's a really, really bad recipe right now. Um, again, here in the state of Michigan, our governor had so many negatives against her, and um, we ran some unknowns with really shaky histories at the top of the ticket. And they really damaged our ability to win those races. Um, and a lot of them came from sort of that. They got the Trump thumbs up. Have you have to move away from that. Have you determined who you'll support for party chair? Uh, no, I have not. I, I've not seen everyone who's running. Um, but uh, I, I wouldn't support somebody who's going to run some sort of, you know, we'll do whatever Donald Trump says agenda. I don't think that's helpful. So, and I think everyone would acknowledge that it's not helpful. I mean, we've moved on. So, so you're no on DePerno for chair? Yeah, I, I don't think we take somebody who ran a losing race in a completely winnable race, uh, who, who built it on conspiracy theories and election fraud. That doesn't sound to me like the direction we're going or we should go in the state of Michigan. Now, I will tell you that if the party is sort of, you know, overrun by people who are, who are built on Trump, then the party becomes sort of a shell that will continue to struggle uh, with fundraising, and I, I'm sure that may, many of our big supporters will just go straight to candidates, um, straight to candidates themselves instead of working through the party, as we saw in 2022. 
you know, some would argue that this makes you a rhino, Representative Filler. Are you a rhino? Okay. <laughs> this is so funny. I mean, I, you know, I guess we're all rhinos if we just want to govern and get things done in Lansing. Um, and it's become this ridiculous name where somebody like my predecessor, Tom Leonard, who is this remarkable, you know, conservative and taking conservative stands, was like the king of the rhinos at the convention. You can't make this shit up. I mean, when you think about when you talk to Republican voters in your district, I mean, you know, is it like one in 10, one in five? You know, how many of them are actually a part of this MAGA loyalist movement? Um, I would say it's probably a very limited, very loud amount. I would say most people have sort of uh, general, and I, I represent a very conservative district, but general conservative ideals about um getting the government off the little guy, supporting things like um, the Second Amendment, um, you know, less government. Those are sort of the concepts that govern their beliefs, um, not the the MAGA loyalty concept. So MERS sponsored a straw poll at the last convention in August. And one of the questions we asked was, who would you like to see run for president in 2024? And 70% of the people who responded, and we had about 500 people respond, 70% said Donald Trump and like 25% said Ron Ron DeSantis, and that was basically it. 70% of delegates and and alternates, Graham, that's got to be pretty imposing. I mean, the party apparatus seems like it likes Donald Trump. I mean, is it going to take another year of losing in order to get it that maybe this isn't the right direction? So I, I think there's two two answers to that question or statement. Um, number one, did did we learn nothing from this election a couple weeks ago? Did we learn nothing at all? And I think nationally, the polling is coming back, or at least responses are coming back, that maybe people are tired of losing in places where they should be winning, Michigan being a great example, in comparison to a Florida where you have a, a governing conservative majority that has shown they can govern and be conservative uh, and not bizarre batshit at the same time. Um, The second part is uh, the folks who are running for these uh, delegate spots are very, um, I guess, in many, many counties are very MAGA based. And so, of course, they would answer yes to that. I'm not sure they speak for the larger Republican Party um, population wise. But, um, you know, that's that's what we're doing in the next two years. Then I want to zoom back to the legislature for a moment. Uh, You know, there is a lot of shades of purple going around this election year. A lot of Democrats campaigning off of, you know, getting rid of taxes. Um, I mean, the retirement taxes. There was a lot of, you know, I grew up Republican mom, Democrat dad. You know, so what is the strategy for accountability to some of these candidates that ran as moderates? I mean, you can say literally anything you want when you run for office. So I put very, very little stock into sort of campaign promises. But the Dems have a really clear path in front of them, and they can go one of two ways. Number one, they can give in to the Michigan Environmental Council um, and whatever far left-wing interest groups back them and start running some really unpopular anti-police defund the police, um, overregulate GM, Dow, um, or they can kind of hit it right down the middle. I think if they go down the middle, they probably set themselves up going forward. But imagine in a 50-50 Monroe um, 
Monroe Wayne based seat in 2024 when a candidate in that seat has to answer for their, you know, pro regulation or and massive regulatory uh, attack on firearms, um, anything you can imagine that probably doesn't poll well in a 50 50 seat, you know, anti law enforcement, then that's going to be a tough time. So if I'm in that 50 50 seat, I'm meeting with Joe Tate and telling him, please don't let the crazies push me into these wild votes that are going to sink me in a 50-50. I mean, imagine that nice little mailer that goes out and said, we've moved on from pure Michigan to pure regulations. And then he's got the Dem candidate on it. I mean, that just writes itself. All You're right. welcome, Kyle. That's a good one. Uh, no, no, you've had a lot of good quarter of the day uh, possibilities here, Graham. Thank you for the treasure trove. We appreciate it. Um, glad to uh, have you on the podcast. Thank you for the time. Representative Graham Filler, the chair of the House stand Judiciary Committee. Guys, appreciate you. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your rights. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your rights. Get up, stand up. Join us now in MERS World Headquarters is the state representative-elect from House District 77, the new district that includes basically North Lansing, anything north of 496 in the Grand River, DeWitt, Grand Ledge. And she's joined us here in studio. Good morning. How are you, Emily? Good morning. I'm doing well. Well, good to see you here. And um, you're state representative-elect. <laughs> I know. It's 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 a little weird. It's good. It's I mean, good. You're, you're so used to your whole career has been on the advocacy side and now you're going to be in a position to like actually make decisions and stuff (laughs) well yes yes and no i I was in the legislature as as a staffer and chief of staff for about 10 years during that time i was also still doing advocacy and um, organizing and working in in civil rights um, on my own time um, so I've had a good, I've had a good mixture of figuring out how to make all of those different approaches work together. So this is, this is a very intentional, um, thoughtful decision to come back into the fold and, uh, make sure that we are, are trying to do things better. Okay. So tell our listeners a little bit about your background. Where did you come from? So I grew up in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And I lived there until I was 18. I I went to Kalamazoo Central. um, And Kalamazoo is a lot like Lansing, um, the city of Lansing, and is a lot like the districts that I ended up being a staffer for. So the... The reason I ended up working in the legislature at all is because when I went to Michigan State, I had to do a internship for James Madison, and uh, it was suggested that I work for Representative Alexander Lipsy, who was my hometown representative. Then after working there, I worked for Representative Caloris out of Saginaw, which was also a city that was very similar to the town I grew up in, um, in that there was a city right in the center and, and rural areas that surrounded it. So we had those seemingly um, different needs and, um, and some would say wants that the legislator had to meet and also find ways that uh, the communities could complement each other. So I always found that fascinating and also a very interesting and necessary challenge to have to address because that is where I grew up. And then Andy Cloris went to D.C. 
Yes, <laughs> he did. He did. And he had become a, a very close friend of mine. So that was that was a miniature heartbreak. Yeah. Um, but we have remained friends. And it gave me the opportunity to step away from politics myself, um, where it's politics, the, the system, the political system, is not where I'm necessarily most naturally uh, comfortable. And to shift into policymaking from the organizing world and into civil rights full-time at Equality Michigan. So I went to be the policy director and the lobbyist for Equality Michigan and I stayed there and shifted up into executive director. I stayed there for a little while and then went into being a civil rights and um, social justice consultant, um, nonprofit consultant, and had been doing that for several years. Um, until I recently did some community invest investment my, myself and worked to open up a, a little bookstore nonprofit. And um, it was within a month that I was talking to somebody who is shifting to the summit now about what they were doing. And um, we talked about who was running for their position. And it became a discussion about whether there was anybody from the community, from the Lansing community, who had been in the community for a while on the ground and what the community had been saying that they, they wanted. And I put consideration into running. And that was just March of this year. Prior to that, you hadn't, well, you had run for the Lansing City Council before, yeah. though. Yes. Yeah. Um, but it was only until earlier this year that you even considered running for state representative and you didn't run a very traditional campaign no no not I, at all it was it was very untraditional talk about that yeah well it wasn't it wasn't possible for me to run a traditional representative campaign it, it wasn't possible that is what a lot of folks don't know and and I didn't make it possible for people to know that because um, I don't talk openly about the accident that I was in but I was still healing from injuries when I entered the race. I am still learning <laughs> what kinds of exercise will cause pain. I was just starting to do a lot of walking at the time that I entered the campaign. I had been hit by a motorcycle as a pedestrian in 2020 and the newspapers had reported that I had received minor injuries and I had actually sustained a few fractures and a serious concussion and um, was out of commission for about a year. Now, to be fair, yeah. though, to, to yeah. the media, yeah, minor right. injuries are different. I right. mean, when we think of major injuries, we think of loss of limb yeah, and yeah. broken, you know, uh, you know, quadriplegic Absolutely. accidents is what we're thinking of. But that's not to minimize right. your injuries, injuries, which were significant and took a long time to heal from. Absolutely. And also, Sparrow did not catch them right away. And, and I won't go into that too much, but um, when you're there in the trauma room and, and you're flagging what the ways that you're in pain, uh, sometimes not everything is able, is able to get checked or does get checked. And um, I had to advocate for myself and say, I really do need these joints scanned. I really do need to go back and get these MRIs um, because I can't move these parts of my body for fractures to be identified. Um, 
and I, I, you learn as you, as you get older all the time, different ways you need to advocate for yourself. I, the, the whole experience was, was really a learning experience in all kinds of ways. There are lots of reasons that I don't talk openly about the accident itself, but the main reason is because I tried to keep the focus on why we were there in the first place. Um, this was a protest after the George Floyd murder. It was a project to paint the mural in front of the Capitol building, the Black Lives Matter mural. I don't know if we categorize it as a protest. It's, it certainly was a, it was an action in response to police brutality. Can we call it a demonstration? Yeah, I, I, would, I would call it a demonstration. Okay. I know that, that legally I'm not allowed to speak to the intent of the person on the motorcycle. I also know that I didn't run out into the street. <laughs> um, so so that, that is important to state, um, that we did everything we could to, to make it safe for, for the painters to, to paint the mural and that I was facilitating the, the painting and the volunteers being able to be out there and be safe and that it had been a location of a lot of harassment by white supremacists and a lot of white supremacist activity. And in the end, the, the motorcyclist ended up getting two traffic tickets. Tickets? Two traffic tickets. That not, not misdemeanors or anything? No. And they cost less than my ambulance ride. I ended up having to do a, a civil lawsuit and figure out what what to do. I come from, as somebody who works in civil rights and social justice, not ever living with, with much in the way of funds. Um, but I didn't feel like that was something that I should benefit from, which is why there is now a nonprofit bookstore that exists. Oh, over on... It's Ottawa, right? Yes. I, yeah. I get the streets mixed or up. It's, I, I could, it's Ionia. Ionia. Okay, yeah. Ionia. All right. I, I just know where I could go to walk to it. I, I didn't recognize the street. But yeah. talk about where this passion comes from, this passion for social justice. Yeah. Where, where does this come from? Well, I think that's a, that's a good question, and, a, and it's an often, often misunderstood one. I grew up in Kalamazoo going to schools that were – majority communities impacted by oppression and in neighborhoods where most of my friends did not look like me. Most of my friends were black and brown folks and, and still most of my childhood friends, they, I still know most of my friends I grew up with. I still, I still talk to, um, we, the folks I grew up with, we all have remained very close somehow. I, I appreciate that about Kalamazoo. Um, and my philosophy in the way that I make change still depends very much on relationships and relationship building and understanding people's context. I dated the same person all through high school and into college. I basically lived at the boy next door's house <laughs> and they they fed me breakfast and dinner almost every day I mean, no offense to my family when I went to college I immediately asked if there was a 
racial justice organization that I could be a part of before I even showed up at, at Michigan State's campus because I didn't know that I would be comfortable um, if I was only surrounded by folks who looked like me because it wasn't it just wasn't what I was used to and I ended up marrying outside of my race I was involved in racial justice before anything else hmm. when I got and I was never I was never in the closet I'm, a, I'm an LGBT person I have always been out of the closet in terms of bisexuality I've been more open related to being non-binary in the last five to ten years I have experienced more in the way of social isolation related to my being LGBT in the last 20 years in part because people assume things about my context and my motivation and related to why I am motivated to be involved in social justice and civil rights because they don't know the context. They don't know why I would be passionate about what I'm passionate about. But the fact is a lot of folks do have an investment because of the love and care that they already have for the people in their lives. And I think that what we can learn from that is that relationship creates an acknowledgement that the stereotypes that we encounter um, don't hold up. Um, and also that the one thing that we can assume about others is that there is going to be a lot that we don't know and a lot that we have yet to learn about others. But, but why, do you, why, why speak out? I mean, you didn't have to be painting the mural yeah. outside of the Capitol. I mean, you didn't have to make it your life mission, but you have. Ever since I was a kid, I was lucky enough to be in a position where I was in rooms with people I care about who weren't exactly like me. So when injustice happened, whether it was in seventh grade or whether it was when I'm 30, I'm 44 now, when we were both doing something and somebody else that I cared about was treated differently, it was obvious to me. When you're in relationship, it's impossible to miss the injustice. When, when you are in the room, when you show up, it's impossible to be ignorant to it. And then I've always had the ethic that once you see it, you can't unsee it and you don't have the excuse to not do something about it. And it's always been that way since I was a kid. So when I was in, even when I was in junior high, I used to do these things that I'm sure that, that some folks would think are ridiculous, where if I had a friend who got sent to the office because we were both doing something, I would send myself to the office. I would put my name on the board. I once 
told a bus driver that she was racist when a friend got in trouble for something that I did. And my bus driver, this was in junior high, said, I can't be racist because I have grandchildren who are black. And I said, that doesn't mean that you like them. And I remember, I, I remember thinking to myself, gosh, Emily, that is harsh. And also, even as a kid thinking, but it can be true. But it can be true. And I was in seventh grade and I got kicked off the bus. I had to walk home from school every day. And I had to call my parents any time something like that happened. And for as conservative as my parents have always been compared to me, I was raised by a in a house where they were Christian and far right and for a very long time because they're not there anymore. They have shifted very much. For as different as they always were, and, and I did not feel welcome until I was an adult, when, in those moments when I had to call from the principal's office, they did always say, if you believe in that, and you're willing to accept that detention, or getting kicked off the bus, okay. And you still see me doing things like taking strong positions on trans inclusion in, a, in the biggest women's festival in the country and saying they can't be excluded from the state civil rights act and then losing my job. And it's not because I feel there's glamor in that. I live in poverty. And it's not because I'm doing it because I feel I'm saving anything or anybody. It is because I think that living by your ethics and ensuring that we are sending clear messages and being on the right side of history is modeling something that will open doors for other people to do the same. So last thing I want to address then, so how can what can people expect with Emily Devendorf as a state representative? Well, I think they're already coming to expect it. And it's not necessarily it's not necessarily something that everybody is or is going to be comfortable with. But I do think it's going to it's going to be positive and that's that I am coming in asking for us to raise the standard. And that is not because I I'm, want an impossible standard. I am coming back to politics because I see that the electorate, the average electorate, those folks in the middle, those folks on both sides of the aisle, they want a better functioning democracy. They want to feel as if the people that they vote into office are working to meet their basic needs and they feel that their basic needs have been neglected for a long time. I also noticed when I was on doors, but also in the work I've been doing on the ground for 20 years, that people do not feel as if the idea of a representative democracy is working. Faith is being lost in our system. 
people feel like government is a world where people get elected and then they do whatever they want. Hmm. So it sounds like you are not uh, get along to get along. <laughs> no, well, I am, I am intending to be a legislator that intends to improve the system as we created the system to always be improved. I believe in a democratic republic with a constitution as we built it to be. I believe in always improving upon a democracy and ensuring that we have a system where we are challenging ourselves to be better, having transparency, always having open discussion, not allowing any, uh, not allowing special interests to control what, what it is that we are doing and how we're doing it, and ensuring that the public and those who are in our communities are shaping the solutions to the issues that most affect them, especially those communities that are most impacted by oppression. Those communities who are most impacted by the issues that we talk about here at the Capitol are the ones who are best able to inform on what the solutions need to look like. And that is why we're supposed to have a representative democracy. That is what this is all supposed to be about. We should never be taking the votes that they, <laughs> that they brought to the polling booths and then running with them and deciding that from there on, we don't need that input. And we are going to gen just take orders um, and not question anything and not take input because the whole foundation of all of this is a beautiful, messy questioning in order to ensure that the people can continue to evolve their government in order to meet their constantly changing needs. And they can't do that if they are not allowed participation in the process. So my challenge right now is to see if my district can serve as a model for a way to do democracy better. I will always be trying to see if I can serve in as, as an example, and our district can serve in as, as an example for doing good better. To me, that sounds like uh, getting a lot of voices involved. That is not a smooth, streamlined system, but that is not what you're interested in doing here very clearly. we got to put a bow on this. We appreciate uh, you coming in. Emily Devendorf, the new representative-elect in House District 77. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the MERS Monday podcast. Post-production of the MERS Monday podcast is by Mark Bayshore Audio and Okemos. We'd like to thank our sponsor, AT&T, for sponsoring this and all our other podcasts. Also, like to thank our guests this week, Sarah Hubbard from Acuitas and the University of Michigan, State Representative Graham Filler, the House Judiciary said, Committee on, Chair, and also Representative-elect Emily Devendorf. For the boss, John Rurink and Samantha Schreiber, so I'm Kyle Malin. Until next week when we start naming our Best Of Award winners for the year 2022, take care. You know what sounds good? It would make my day.
Do you think this store? Do you think this store? Do you think this store has any lemonade? Then he waddled.